Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Rick Hess. He's the Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and he works on both K-12 and higher education issues. Dr. Hess started his career as a high school social studies teacher. He teaches or has taught at the University of Virginia, University of Pennsylvania, Georgetown University, Rice University, Johns Hopkins University, and Harvard University. His most recent book is Letters to a Young Education Reformer. He has an MA and a PhD in government, in addition to a Master's of Education in Teaching and Curriculum from Harvard University, and a BA in Political Science from Brandeis. Thanks for joining us today, Rick. Hey, my pleasure to be here. Great. So we always like to start out these banter episodes by asking our guests a little bit about how they got to AEI. So what was your path? What did your career look like before this? And what drew you to AEI? Sure. You know, I started out three decades ago as a high school social studies teacher. I only had about two years of school bureaucratic insanity in me before I ran for the fire exit. (laughs) Went back and did my PhD with Paul Peterson up at Harvard, trying to understand why school systems are so dysfunctional. Became a professor at University of Virginia, was there for five years, pretty much got chased out the fire exits out of there. I wrote an influential piece, the Bush White House embrace, arguing that teachers shouldn't need licenses. Turns out that did not make me popular with my colleagues in schools of education. I thought things like competition and vouchers and charters were important and dynamic development. This did not endear me to my colleagues. And happily, Chris DeMuth brought me in to start AEI Education from UVA back in 2002. I have found it pretty much what I thought universities were going to be for the last 18 years, a place where I could ask hard questions and speak my mind and engage in important public conversations without having to worry about whether or not my colleagues were going to throw me out on the street. So when I first came to AEI, Phoebe, you'd walk around the hallways in the old building and every third book came out of the education program. Yeah. And every third, <laughs> every third publication is another one by Rick Hess. And, and I thought, there is no way I can keep up with this guy. He's unbelievable. <laughs> and he's got a kind of whole network here at yeah. AEI and we admire it. But Rick, you know, you have challenged liberal orthodoxy. There's no question about that. And of course, that's what we love the most about you. But you also challenge conservatives, too, and you're not everybody's best pal on that side either. How'd that happen? You know, I think one of the problems is conservatives in education, it's kind of like we're playing, we're always playing away game. It's always like you're playing in somebody else's stadium. I assume liberals sometimes feel like this when it comes to nuclear weapon issues, nuclear weaponry. But I think conservatives have for so long felt like we were playing away games that they've tended to go one of two directions. One is they have been willing to put their principles in their pocket in order to strike deals. So for many years, conservative champions of school choice, or before that, educational accountability, were willing to tolerate terrible ideas from our progressive counterparts. They're willing to countenance race-based tracking of what constitutes a good school. They've been willing to give a free path to the birth of really toxic doctrines of how we should teach children to think about values and opportunity and capitalism and American history and race. And I think on the other side, what's happened is you've wound up with conservatives who have approached education more as a political fight than as a fight about ideas or values. 
So they're very aggressive and engaged in fighting for things which I generally support, like school vouchers, or opposing a whole bunch of the problems with the Common Core. But they've tended to approach it with so little thoughtfulness, so little reflection, so little attention to what it actually takes for markets to work, for instance, that they have found me just to be a giant pain in the butt because I keep talking about what it takes not just to win a tactical fight, but to make sure these ideas actually work for kids and families. And a lot of my impassioned friends on the right think that's just eggheadery that's getting in the way. Yeah, on both sides, but people sort of do the soundbite and then leave the field. And you're standing there still trying to fight for better education for kids. And details matter. And they can't leave those things out if they're really going to advance a policy that's going to work. Now, speaking of things that aren't working or that could work better, just since we're in the, still in the middle of this unusual pandemic, what's happening with getting back to school? And where do you think people are doing things that are working? And where do you think things are, how much damage are we doing to kids' education by keeping them out of school this long? So to start with the last, I think we're doing a lot of damage to kids, some of it to their education, some of it to their emotional and social well-being. For me and Jolene, our kids, it's bad for them. You know, our kids are six and four, but they've got a big house and they've got two parents who've got jobs that give us some flexibility. And when you think about kids and families that are stuck in small apartments who don't have much space, whose parents are working essential jobs, it's doing a lot of harm to those kids. And a lot of those kids are just disappearing from the radar, frankly. They're not even getting remote learning. And school districts don't know how to connect with those families. Before you go on, I just want to ask, is this a place where the deficiencies of the public education system really become apparent, where Catholic schools or school choice or charter schools, private schools that have been able to give kids something have outperformed the public school system? Or am I wrong about that? They've run laps around the public. They've run laps. Private and charters have run laps around the public school system. And I think there's a couple of things that work. One is that private schools, you know, whether Catholic schools in particular with this strong sense of mission in these central cities, so many of these charter networks, these are places that are mission-driven in a very literal sense. School districts are so hampered by bureaucratic routines that it's not even whether the teachers mean well and want to help the kids. You know, the city of Philadelphia this spring issued an official letter which prohibited teachers from teaching for nine weeks. Because they said, we don't know how to make sure we're teaching for everybody, so nobody's allowed to teach or you're in trouble. Okay. And that went from March until early May. Arlington, Virginia, where we live, I told teachers, well, you can teach, but you're not allowed to teach any new content. The L.A. Teacher Union negotiated a memoranda of understanding with the district, said teachers could only be asked to teach four hours a day, and none of it could be expected to be online. If they wanted to just put up materials, the district had no grounds to ask anything else. So one. So public school systems have just shown themselves to be so hampered by bureaucracy and inertia and standard operating procedure that it's been crippling. And then the second is the politics of this stuff. You know, the Chicago Teachers Union said, hey, we don't want to go back into buildings until there's Medicare for all. Milwaukee Teacher Education Association was holding die-ins in parks where second and third grade teachers were putting up tombstones. If there is anything more calculated to give a seven or eight-year-old nightmares for months on end, it's probably seeing their, a picture of their teacher in a park putting up tombstones. And 
for reasons that I think we're all pretty familiar with, districts have a lot of these kinds of political and factional dynamics, and you just don't see these same choke points stopping charter and private school leaders from figuring out how to stand up for families and kids. So what you're saying is, is that in the middle of the COVID crisis, where we had enough problems in education, we had this crisis over the death of George Floyd, which then sort of accelerated the prevalence of a curriculum about our country's history and about racism and about what progress or we've made or not made and, and politicized the classroom even more than it already been. And I just, I mean, I grew up in, you know, I'm older than Phoebe by a long <laughs> shot, and, and that's one of the dynamics of this conversation. But I went to nice schools that, frankly, I was educated in private education. But even then, teachers were unabashed about saying that our country was a great one and we'd made great progress. But they don't do that anymore. And, and wh- how bad is it, Rick? How bad is the curriculum about our history in K through 12 in the United States? Honestly, you know, we know that there's what I think just to be hugely destructive stuff going on in schools and curricula. What we don't actually know is how widely used these things are. So one of the problems with the debate is that we're all kind of arguing blind because we don't know for sure what teachers are teaching. Here's a couple of things we do know, though. One, we do know that the Pulitzer Prize winning 1619 project which was put out by the New York Times in concert with the Pulitzer Center, has been adopted by about 4,000 classrooms. One thing we do know is that the 1619 curriculum is being used in at least, say, 35 or 400,000 classrooms, was pushed out to hundreds of thousands of teachers by the magazine of the American Federation of Teachers, has been celebrated. And at the same time, we know that the New York Times has been secretly deleting the most inaccurate and objectionable portions of it without acknowledging it, that this entire curriculum, which is based on the premise that the U.S. was launched not in 1776, but in 1619 as a slaveocracy, is the hottest thing going in education circles. Two, we know that RAND did, has done a terrific job of actually using some old AEI survey work to look at what the nation's social studies teachers are doing and think is important. And disturbingly, this summer, they reported that only about 35% of social studies teachers think it's important that students know facts about America's history. Only about 40 or 45% of social studies teachers think it's important that kids know the First Amendment or the branches of government. Now, what's going on there is anybody's guess, but having spent a lot of time, 30 years, in and around social studies education as a teacher, as somebody who works with teachers, I think what we've seen is a culture where we have told teachers Facts aren't, they aren't what matters. What matters is helping kids think, and they will look it up later. And what that has done is create a vacuum for all kinds of goofy narratives. And the problem is that these narratives, and this is the third point, that these narratives are actually being less driven by history and more by politics and ideology. So listeners have probably heard of Ibram Kendi, just named one of Time's 100 People of the Year, Robin DiAngelo the author of White Fragility, who sold more than a million copies of this thing. In education, their hottest counterpart is Bikina Love. And what these guys are preaching is a vision of anti-racism, which says that America is racist through and through. The Constitution is racist. The Senate is racist. The First Amendment is racist. And that the job of schools and teachers is to teach kids to be anti-racist, which by definition 
means teaching kids to reject so much, not only of our historical tradition and fabric, but even our institutional norms, if they want to be good anti-racist. And the fact that this has been going on now for several years, that it has only now started to generate pushback, is, I think, a really you know, troubling statement on you know, where the nation's schools and colleges are. I know Phoebe's got a question, but I want to just follow up on one other thing is allegedly racist, and I want to know your take on it. Is the meritocracy racist? Are they saying that too? Um, well, certainly they label it racist. And you look, and I think I've written a lot, for instance, about Michael Sandel up at Harvard, who I was a student of many years ago, just came out with a book, which builds on some work we've done at AEI about the problems with, for instance, the college diploma as the golden ticket to entry to good jobs and success in America. As Grant Addison and I have argued, as the presidential executive order has built off our work has pointed out, this is a misappropriation of the Civil Rights Act of 65. That what that act said was you can't use employment tests unrelated to the work in question. The fact that Enterprise Rental Car, for instance, would ask, do you have a degree rather than can you do the job behind the counter is not meritocracy. It's runaway credential cartels, where these credentials are locking people who are willing to work hard and do the right thing out of opportunity. On the other hand, so if that's what we're talking about, then I think there's ground for right and left to work together to say we should not let colleges or institutions of education be barriers to opportunity. On the other hand, if the indictment is that the idea of meritocracy is somehow an evil, fundamentally flawed one, which is precisely what the Kendys and D'Angelo's are arguing, then I think it is a goofy and hugely destructive way of life to be teaching our kids. Yeah, we definitely want to move on to a couple other higher ed questions we have for you, too. But before we leave kind of K through 12, I just wanted to highlight, I mean, some of the work coming out of the education team at AEI has been really groundbreaking. Some of the data that tracks, you know, has been tracking closures since they started early in the spring kind of one of the only resources available on that. So, you know, given what we've talked about, the harm that's being done often to students that are already, you know, struggling academically, very poor, do you think that we should be doing more to push schools to reopen? And kind of the reason that that we're not has become that public schools at least would need more funding. Biden talked about that in the debate. Do you think that that is the biggest obstacle to reopening? Is it a funding issue? So it's not a funding issue. I'll get to that in a sec. Phoebe, that thanks. Yeah. So what you're talking about there, of course, for listeners, is Matt Malkus's phenomenal work on this stuff. Matt Malkus, one of our education team scholars, was probably the first person in the entire country in the field with a tracking survey of what schools were doing in the spring. And one of the things that documented so powerfully was that even by the time we got to the end of the spring, only about one in three or one in four schools had any real-time Zoom teaching going on between kids and students. Most schools weren't doing any of that. And, you know, look, it's one thing to give schools a mulligan on the spring. Let's not be second-guessers here. Everybody was caught flat-footed. I certainly had never, in decades of doing this, suggested that people needed to be prepared for a pandemic. So let's not be unfair. But, you know, right now, the data is kind of squishy on the overall numbers, but we know, say, 75 of the nation's 100 biggest school districts are closed right now. The vast majority of the nation's big 20 are closed. And we know that this is causing, as we've talked about already, real harm to kids on multiple dimensions. The best estimates of this stuff from, say, NWEA, working with some of my old colleagues at University of Virginia, estimate that kids have lost half to a full grade level 
if you think about what we sometimes call a summer learning loss, when particularly low-income children who don't get the opportunities to go to camp and do cool stuff in the summer are left at home to their own devices, they turn out to suffer dramatic learning losses because they're not getting the opportunities and sports other kids are getting. Well, for those, so many of those kids, we're in month six or seven of that. So it is crucial that every school that can find a way to responsibly reopen, especially for younger children, with appropriate protocols, the kinds of stuff our, our colleague Scott Gottlieb talks about time and again, those schools need to find a way to do it. They haven't. The biggest excuse I'll give you is why they haven't, as they say, they don't have the money. Well, look, we actually have broken this down. We took some time this summer and we said, how much is it actually costing schools to go ahead and do remote learning? We factored in standard government maintenance costs for unoccupied buildings. We factored in a meal delivery. We factored in market prices for high quality tutoring. We factored in 15% overhead. All in, we were able to come to about $6,000 per kid per year. That's about 38% of what your typical school spends. So look, if schools have been knocking it out of the park and they say they need some extra money for personal protective equipment and additional COVID testing and for social distancing modifications, I got a lot of sympathy. For schools which have been sitting closed for four or five months, yeah. as best I can calculate, these guys should have a pile of cash somewhere. And if they don't, it's not because they don't have enough money. It's because of their routines and spending decisions are not aligned in ways that are really doing what's best for their kids and their families. So let's turn to higher ed for a minute. You came out with something recently that, of course, for a parent made me feel very good. So I don't have to worry so much about whether my children get into the most selective schools in America. It basically said that the most selective schools in America aren't the ones that necessarily lead to the highest earnings. And, you know, that's part of the outcome that you look for in education. Do I have that right? And should all us parents out there who have their, their hearts set on Stanford and Princeton, should we relax a little bit? So we did this work with Joe Fuller at Harvard Business School, who is also an AEI associate. And what we found, Joe and I looked at two different cohorts, tens of thousands of folks who've gotten degrees and been tracked by the National Center for Ed Statistics in these longitudinal studies. And we found that if you went to most selective category of colleges or the totally not selective category where everybody gets in, four years after graduation, the pay premium of going to the really fancy places was maybe 10%. So given the starting salaries were generally about forty-five dollars to $55,000 a year, you're talking about a difference of maybe four dollars to $5,000 between the nation's most selective schools and the ones that will take anybody who shows up with the diploma. If you think about the fact that it's going to cost you a quarter million, give or take, to go to these most expensive, the fancy schools, and that you can get a degree at the other end of the spectrum for 20 grand or less, in order to recoup that $230,000 difference, you kind of probably got to be working into your 90s. Hmm. So yeah, there's other things obviously going on. There's other reasons people like to go to brand name schools. You people are buying the club net experience. They're buying contacts. If you're going to college because you're worried about how much you earn, that research suggests that people can take a couple of deep breaths and relax a little bit. And then if you also want to go to a school where free speech is celebrated and protected, it seems like the most selective colleges, the most prestigious ones, are where some of the most egregious sort of cancel culture 
shutting down of people with different views, most often conservative views, is taking place. Now, that may or may not be great. That's what it seems like. I guess I want to ask you, Rick, how bad is the anti-free speech movement and spirit on college campuses? I mean, I think it's pretty awful. I think it's pretty awful. It's funny. People I really respect, say David French, um, our good friend at the Dispatch, who launched FIRE, the main group for student free speech rights, will argue that it was worse 20 years ago, that there was more in the way of formal speech codes. And David's an incredibly smart guy and knows these things, so I think he makes a good point. But if we don't look just at what's written down in terms of speech codes, but at the energy, the culture, the zeitgeist, we know, for instance, that the majority of college students now say they don't feel free to speak their minds on campus. This is overwhelmingly the case among conservative students. They say that they are worried about the social consequences. They're certainly worried about the academic consequences of speaking up. And so what's happened is we have, I think, increasingly created a campus culture when a small fringe is actually getting the terms for what is permissible speech, what is acceptable speech. And I think what we're seeing is a reasonably large chunk of the campus population, not just people on the right, but also a lot of centrists and even more traditional liberals who are now intimidated in the silence because they are worried about the struggle sessions they'll undergo, about the attacks they will take if they speak up. Let me give you a super quick example. Last week, a professor at Ohio State University, Mitchell Mayhew, I believe is the name, endowed a chair in educational leadership, wrote a piece saying, hey, Big Ten football is coming back. This is awesome. We can cheer together. It reminds us that we're all members of the Buckeye community, whether we're red or blue, and we need this more than ever amid COVID and polarization. Five days later, five days later, he ran a retraction in Inside Higher Education where he apologized for having been so blinded by his whiteness and privilege, where he apologized for saying football was a good thing, where he explained that he had now been re-educated in the errors of his ways, and where he pledged that he is about to embark on a career-long journey to center his privilege and reevaluate his blindness. Now, Rick, one of the things that I'm picking up, and, and Phoebe, I'm going to blame this on you, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, and it may go back to David French's original point in your comment, that the problem now is not so much the administrations of these schools not standing up to protect free speech or imposing speech codes on their professors or students, but the students who are the most virulent shutters down of unorthodox opinion, especially if it happens to be conservative. So Phoebe, it's your fault. (laughs) It's people in your generation. Am I right about that? I mean, is it And the way you answered the question, Rick, you seem to indicate there was now a culture, a zeitgeist, an attitude on campus. Even in the example you gave, it sounds like he was maybe harassed into apologizing. What do we do about that? You know, no, I mean, if somebody had put up an image in which he was in a North Korean gulag getting reeducated, it it would not have been out of place with the column he wrote. So I don't think that's entirely right. So, Phoebe, you're a little bit off the hook here. Um, <laughs> I think, look, I think partly what's going on is our colleague, Sam Abrams, has done some wonderful work, for instance, surveying college administrators. In fact, it got his office broken into and it got his campus wanted to throw him off and hang him in effigy for daring to write op-eds in the New York Times. And what Sam pointed out was that 
as far left as campus faculty is, and campus faculty are progressive over conservative by something like six or seven to one, generally speaking, that the people who run, say, student life and this entire bureaucratic nest that sits the middle of the modern campus, that these guys make the faculty look like a bunch of Burkeans. These are a bunch of folks who swim in the waters of ideology and kind of woke left current. So it's not necessarily what's in the formal campus speech code, but it is certainly in what gets sponsored, what gets frowned at, what gets encouraged on campus. And then I think the other piece is our former colleague, Walter Burns, wrote about this so powerfully in the case, the student takeovers in 69, 70, when he was at Cornell, is that so much of this is really, what are we as adults for? Mm -hmm. Are we willing to stand up and say that we need to educate our youth in the things we believe in? Are we willing to stand on principle or are we scared? Are we so scared of being yelled at or rendered unpopular that we are going to give in? And I think what we see in a lot of campuses is this fringe of students that is driving this and enabling faculty should be challenged. But I think you see far too many campuses where the bulk of the faculty and the provost think it's a hell of a lot better to just kind of go along for the ride than to risk coming across, you know, as being on the wrong side of the issue. So just two quick political questions. It seems to me that the Secretary of Education did a good thing when she made efforts to get the universities to have a more fair process for determining the guilt or innocence of people accused of sexual harassment. Am I right about that? Are you with her on that? Or or is that wrong? And then the second is... You're absolutely right. And just for folks who don't know, so what happened was back in the Obama years, a runaway office of civil rights under Catherine Lamont at the U.S. Department of Education issued just a letter saying, hey, we've read a bunch of pseudoscience garbage that claims campuses are runaway factories of sexual harassment and assault and created a whole bunch of constitutionally indefensible mechanisms for addressing allegations. And what Secretary DeVos did, to her credit, despite a ton of blowback from the media and the progressive left, but I repeat myself, what she did despite that was say, hey, we are going to tell campuses that they have to use fair, systematic mechanisms for ascertaining guilt. They've got to let the accused have somebody confront the accuser. They've got to make sure the accused actually sees the evidence. The fact that this is in the least bit controversial is stunning. But it's a huge credit to Secretary DeVos that she saw this through. So, Rick, under a Biden administration, what are you most worried about or what do you think is a potential opportunity under this new new president? So those are actually one of the same, the Biden free college agenda. When they talk about free college, people say, oh, that'd be nice. The idea that working class parents have to figure out how to come up with six figures, tenure kid colleges feels kind of nuts. What free college entails, though, is basically turning American higher education into single-payer healthcare. The idea would be that public higher ed institutions, which enroll about 80% of the folks in American higher education, would be, the tuition at least, would be free. The bulk of this would come from Washington in some kind of matchmaking partnership with state. But of course, as soon as you get Congress involved in paying for everybody's college tuition, 
Congress obviously has to have a say in how much college is charged. It has to have a say in what a college education is going to include and not include. It obviously has to have a say in what gets taught. And so pretty much you immediately have to create like the IPAB machinery from Obamacare because you can't run free college where colleges get to do their thing. So the standards plan, for instance, even as Washington dictating what percentage of college faculty can be adjunct or not adjunct, whether colleges can give a merit scholarship. This should be terrifying, I think, to those of us who think American higher education is both a valuable sector in its own right and is fundamental to our notions of freedom and the competition of ideas. On the other hand, the opportunity here is if you were going to tell me that I could sit down with far-seeing, dynamic Republican senators and that they were going to suddenly be the super board of overseers for all of American higher education, I could not think of a more target-rich opportunity to go after bloat and bias and inefficiency. And so the idea that the college industry would choose to serve itself up for the next Republican administration to go to work on, <laughs> there's a little bit of a sugar plum dynamic there, even amid the horrors of the of the policy missteps. I have one last question here as, you know, the voice of my generation or the person at least who was most recently on a college <laughs> campus. So, I mean, I'm two years out of college. I was at Cornell. I definitely saw that definitely over the four years that I was there became less tolerant of opposing views, all the things we we're talking about. But I think there was and continues to be a bit of a sense that those things, it's a college bubble. The things that happen there kind of stay there. College campuses are their own little battleground. But I think what we've started to see recently and what people are starting to realize is that, you know, these ideas are then exported, right, to all different kinds of workplaces, newsrooms, you know, the, everything at the New York Times. So what do you see as kind of the consequences beyond college campuses of this atmosphere? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You know, one of our Ed Program alums, Grant Addison, who's deputy managing editor at the Washington Examiner, did a wonderful piece on this about two months ago, where he said, look, you know, basically all of educated America has now become a college campus. That's what we're seeing. And look, so I think part of this means that in some sense, it goes back to what Robert started us off on the conversation that, like, in some sense, I think conservatives missed the boat here. Conservatives are so busy either trying to win tactical political victories or trying to make nice with the left, which tends to predominate in, in higher ed, that we just allowed a lot of really destructive stuff to go on without ever trying to man the rampart. That's one piece is we just, I think we are seeing lots of Americans, not just on the right either. I think we're seeing lots of Americans waking up to what we've allowed to happen and starting to push back. And so that's part of it. The second is, look, that can't just be in higher ed at this point. We've got to think about the kinds of just reflective bias that show up in reporting. We've seen this with professional development in federal agencies and what they're bringing in and what they're training people in. But for me, I think the biggest opportunity here, honestly, I just wrote about it for the for National Review's education issue, is we have tended to think about educational improvement, especially in higher ed, is a matter of fixing things. So if you think about the Bush efforts around No Child Left Behind, it was how do we use accountability and interventions to make traditional school systems work? And K-12 is a whole set of debates on this stuff, partly because there's also this whole child care function. 
But when we think about the places that aren't K-12, when we think about early childhood and we think about higher ed, I think too often conservatives and especially conservative philanthropists and conservative advocates have been co-opted into saying, all right, how do we carve out a little safe space in this college? How do we get an early childhood program that won't just be an extension of the district-run K-12 system? And what I think we need to shift to is from that kind of incrementalist mindset to something much more unapologetically Schumpeterian. We've got to say, you know what? In the 19th century, we built American higher ed because entrepreneurial donors started Johns Hopkins from scratch. They started the U of Chicago. 11 of America's 20 leading universities today were launched between 1850 and 1900 by private donors. We need a new age of entrepreneurial philanthropy, of entrepreneurial activity, of deregulation. We can invest in higher ed and early childhood, but we need to invest in new institutions that are built by new people with a new sense of mission. And I think that's a long game. That doesn't help the New York Times or you know, Washington Post newsroom this year or next year. But I think it took us a while to dig ourselves into this hole, and we are going to need more than just short-term solutions to get out of it. You see what he's doing there, Phoebe? He's, <laughs> he wants me to start a college at AEI. Mm-hmm. New a mission. New mission. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Rick. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Rick. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.